Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Rev22 family. My name is Derek, and I'm so grateful to be able to fill in for Bryn while he's ministering with the students up in Cascade for the weekend, and grateful for the invitation to come and to be a part of this family. So appreciate uh, how God worked through this community. I love the relationship that um, I personally have, my wife has, just with Bryn and John and the staff here, and getting to know you all. Grateful to be here. Hey, I serve at Boise Bible College, just down the road a few miles over by the fairgrounds, and I've been there for a decade. Um, I serve as the president, uh, and I also get the opportunity to teach in the classroom, and our semester starts up this week, so we have some um, fun energy around for us right now. But if you've ever, ever wondered about what it might be like to want to study the scriptures or theology at a collegiate level, man, I'd love to talk with you. If you, ever, if you ever want to know what that might be like, maybe uh, you thought about maybe supplementing that into your, uh, just your, your role as a volunteer here, or maybe, maybe, maybe God's like getting a hold of your heart and wanting to do something uh, uniquely new in the kingdom, and maybe there's just something that we can play a role in, we'd welcome that opportunity. I'd love to talk with you after the worship service. Uh, there's a word that's been rumbling in my heart for a while, the last uh, half a year at least, maybe the last... 12, 18 months, the word fearless, fearless. Um, Its cousin is actually the seed of why this kid, fearful is the word that's kind of been uh, uh, around our world, my world. And so I've been thinking about fearless just to kind of work through the fearful thoughts, you know. Boy, fearfulness can really suffocate. And you feel like you're having a hard time, kind of freeze us. It can just kind of freeze us in place. And I'm really not talking about when you're on the ledge about ready to bungee jump. Not, get, not that kind of fear. I'm talking about like the, the kind of fear when you feel really outnumbered or overwhelmed with the stuff of the world. And just this anxiety, this deep down in your soul sort of a unsettledness, you know. And boy, there's a lot of manifestations with that sort of a fear. Fear of like what others will think about you as they talk to others about you. <laughs> Is that just me or is that the fear of, you know, future economic status and, and security, the fear of, of our kids and uh, our grandkids and what, what society is doing in, in them and how that can be harmful or just fear of the sickness and the seriousness of that. There's a lot of anxiety. Fear really feasts on what ifs, you know what I mean? And boy... In the solitude and the, the quiet times, we play what if game all the time. What if that happens? Or what if that happens? Or what if this takes place? And so we, we, we have this anxiety that comes up in this fear that can kind of come up and it can just really suck life out of you. But fearlessness, fearless, now that's a different story. That oxygenates. Fearlessness really enlivens. Fearlessness it unifies, it galvanizes, fearlessness overcomes paranoia and whatever degree of trauma. Fearlessness helps us seize the opportunities that fear prevents us from taking 
the things in front of us. What opportunities are right in front of you that fear is inhibiting you? Fearlessness is the unshackling of that to step in. Maybe a question you might consider is, if all I had was faith and no fear, what would I do? What would you do if you just had fearlessness? No fear. You know, whether you're a leader or a follower, whether you're a CEO or middle manager, whether you're a parent or a child, or whether you're about to start college, you're, you're thinking about starting retirement, the Lord Jesus knows what you need to live fearless. We can learn some things as he talks to his 12, the original group of disciples. We can see how he interacts with them, and we can learn from that dialogue. He's on the eve in this scene He's been talking about predicting his suffering and predicting his death, and he's on the eve of knowing what they're going to feel, and it's going to be full of sorrow and despair. They're they're afraid because he's going to leave them. And so he knows what's going on, and it's almost like he's anticipating that what's about to happen is going to be like that snow squall in that snow globe that someone's shaking, and you're like, where are we? He knows that's about to happen for these disciples. So he says these words. He helps them face their fear. In John 16, picking it up from where we left off, uh, in verse 4, right in the middle of it, I I didn't say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. What did he say? Just to recall, the last end of chapter 15, he's been talking about how the world hates him, how the world hates the Father, and how the world's going to hate you 12, and he's going to harm you. I didn't say that because I was with you, but verse 5, now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, just so you know, time out, Brent and I are kind of sharing chapter 16 together. This is like part A. He's going to pick up part B next week, and there's some things in what we just read that he's going to be addressing. But going on in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father, they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. I don't know if I would have known what he's talking about, except for some good commentaries today. Jesus' announcement of his departure is distressing the twelve the first disciples. He's leaving them, but not for long. And they want to know how long. It's naturally to want to know how long are you going to be away from us? How long is the trip going to be? And he says, in a little while. Interesting for us who live in this county, the word in the Greek is micron. 
in a little, in just a little bit. And it's used seven times right here in chapter 16. And so therefore, because of the repetitive use of that idea of a little while, that's the central question of this section. And the disciples ask it. In verse 10, we just read verse 10, Jesus said he's going to the Father and they will not see him any longer. But then six verses later down in verse 16, he says, they will see me and it won't be long. What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus is going to be gone for a little while and he's trying to reassure the 12 that his absence is just going to be like a micron, just really short time. But they're confused. I mean, the 12 are really distraught and understandably so, right? So Jesus adds in verse 19. Jesus knew what they were asking of him, and he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. For the 12, the time between their sorrow over Jesus leaving them to go die. And that time when their joy will be reunited with him on the other side of the empty grave, that time will be just a little while. That Passover, unlike any other Jewish Passover they've been ever part of, the whole script has changed. It just feels different. And there's some things going on that their master is saying, and they're, they're just distraught. And the only joy, it doesn't reside in the disciples. The joy is something the world has. The, the joy in the streets when Jesus apparently is done and dies. There's going to be joy and rejoicing at his suffering on the cross. The people and the paradigms that are opposing and perpendicular to the movement of God, they'll be dancing in the streets. The spiritual demonic constructs that are in collision with God's mission, they will be rejoicing over Jesus' death. But the 12, Jesus said, you're going to feel sorrow and fear Maybe a few more emotions. I might wonder if they might be feeling would be abandonment and a little insecurity, disappointment for sure as the visions of their power positions in the kingdom are now dissolving with Jesus' departure. They will not see him that Friday or that Saturday. But joy will overtake their fears when they see him on that Sunday. Joy will accompany Jesus' resurrection splendor, that time when he reversed death's curse and they see him in glory in just a micron. In just a few days, in a little while, they'll be overwhelmed with joy. And as Jesus often did, he helps them with a picture. He presents a, a metaphor for the 12 these good boys of Judaism would understand. It's got some Old Testament things behind what is apparent on the surface. Verse 21, when a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. There's some messianic themes in the idea. There's some Old Testament echoes from that idea of, of a woman giving birth and the Messiah coming and, through anguish, joy will be overwhelmed and experienced. The 12 will anguish over Jesus going to the cross. And the woman's suffering in that metaphor parallels the suffering this way. Here's the parallel. After the pain, after the anguish of the little while, comes joy. 
And so related to Jesus, if I can run with that metaphor, there's going to be life birthed out of a womb of the grave. It's going to be emptied and there's going to be life in just a micron. You're going to have so much joy. And when the disciples do see Jesus resurrected, their hearts will explode with joy, a joy that no one will take from them. And I want that long-lasting joy. I want that joy. I want to feel that joy. I want that today. So what are some byproducts? If we understand what that result might be, maybe it'll help me acquire it or desire it. There are at least two notable effects of joy in Jesus' followers. Here's the first one. The effect number one is the joy of spiritual understanding. I'm capitalizing the S there because I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spiritual level of understanding. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. All of the 12's questions and all of their doubts about Jesus' mission and his purpose and his teachings and his kingdom authority over death, all that will now be made known to them. Light bulbs will go off. Their confusion will be dispelled and will produce informed joy. We're talking knowledgeable emotion. That's the joy he's talking about. But still more, Jesus' resurrection will inaugurate something. Coming out of the grave will inaugurate a new day, an era of the Holy Spirit of God indwelling His people. So through the Spirit, Jesus' disciples will be in the know. By the Spirit, they will know Jesus' way of thinking. They will understand why He would do it this way or that way. Can you hear Jesus? Can you hear him kind of explaining these things to the 12? Hey, sure, gang. Yeah, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Yeah, I get that. But after my resurrection from the grave, you'll understand everything. You're going to be in the know, in large part because I'm going to deposit the Holy Spirit within you. He'll be the informant. <laughs> their sorrow, their confusion will turn to joy because Jesus will not be defeated by the grave. And when the disciples actually do see Jesus, four chapters later in John chapter 20, John records that their confidence is reinstated, that they are filled with joy. And then 50 days after that, you know what happens? Acts 1 and 2, 50 days after that, Jesus will ascend and the Spirit will be given to inhabit the 12 and all faithful followers on the planet today. Through the Spirit, Jesus will abide and He will reside within the 12 and faithful followers. The Spirit is almost like miracle grow for joy in the 12 and in us. The Spirit grows assurance. The Spirit will grow confidence. The Spirit will lead us to live, here's the word, fearless to lead fearless as followers of Jesus. It's really contingent upon the Spirit's presence within, giving them understanding, giving us understanding. The Spirit kind of muscles up a fearless way of living. But the problem today is we hardly know much about the Holy Spirit. I mean, for example, for thousands of years, humans have enjoyed the benefits of oxygen without having the slightest idea of the chemical properties of how oxygen works in our bodies. But as scientists have become more knowledgeable and better understanding oxygen, we're able to work in partnership with, the, with oxygen within our bodies. And so as that knowledge grows, we're able to maximize the use of oxygen. And so that increased knowledge actually has improved everything from fighting fires to saving lives to optimizing the performance of your fantasy league football player. Chris Seedman had a great suggestion. He suggests the spirit could be considered as the oxygen of the church. 
Christians enjoy the benefits of the Spirit without having the slightest idea of the properties of the Spirit working within us. But as we mature in Christ, as we grow in our knowledge, we gain a better understanding of the Spirit and our ability to actually partner with the Spirit grows. But too many Christians today around the world take the Spirit for granted, kind of just assumed He's just going to be. Almost like, you know, we take water for granted, electricity and heat on a chilly morning for granted. Ever been to a third world country and watched them live with some of the things that we take for granted? And we come back home, we have a renewed appreciation for water from the tap <laughs> and consistent Wi-Fi and electricity and, and all those luxuries for life. And we assume those utilities are always going to be there until they're not. The water main is out, the power goes out, and we freak out, right? So let me ask you a poignant question. If the Holy Spirit were turned off in our life, would we even notice If the Spirit were switched off, would we notice? Just be aware of this. The Spirit makes all this faith in Jesus stuff happen. He's the power. The Spirit is the strength. The Spirit is the authority. The Spirit is the informant of Jesus within us. Just go back a couple of chapters, John 14. When Jesus first tells his disciples about the Spirit, here's Jesus. He's saying like, hey, gang, I'm going to be departing soon, but I'm not going to leave his orphans. I'm going to send you the Spirit. And the 12 was kind of like, uh, hold on, Lord. I mean, we're not sure about this deal here. We've got God in the flesh. Who's the Spirit? Doesn't sound like a fair trade to me. Well, just make this point. The Spirit's a full-fledged equal member of the Trinity, equal in every way. It's a mistake to view the Spirit as some JV member in the triune community. Like, here comes Jesus ascending from the earth. He's at the right hand of God. And like the Father's like, okay, uh, looking down the bench. Uh, okay, who's up? Spirit, I guess you're up. No. The Spirit's like equal member in every way. He's not lesser than Jesus. The Spirit's not lesser than the Father. It's a mistake to view that Jesus and, and the Father and the Spirit are, are on different levels. So listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus as he prepares the disciples for his departure. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, there's the key word, another helper to be with you forever. Now, you got to recall that behind our English Bibles, it was originally written in Greek, and so we got to know there's a couple of Greek word options for the English word another. Which Greek term is that. You could have the Greek word heteros, which is another of a similar kind. But the Greek word that John uses here, that Jesus uses to his 12, is alos, another of exact same kind. I'm going to give you one just like me, Jesus says. Not less than me, equal to me in every way. I'm leaving you physically, but I'm going to come reside in you spiritually. So get it person of Jesus in us. Jesus gives himself in spirit form to be in those who choose to follow him through faith. It's a profound truth, isn't it? God with you, that is good. But God in you, that is so much better The moment you became a child of God, the moment you became an heir of the king, all of his resources were made available to you. Everything you need to be a man of God, a woman of God, his wisdom, his love, his fortitude, his faithfulness, all that, his peace, it's available to you. So here's the point. Let's tie this back to John 16. 
The Messiah is about to enter death, only to come out the other side fully alive. That resurrection moment will be a joyful epiphany for his 12, just a little while. And soon after that, Jesus will insert the authority of himself in them via the Holy Spirit. They will then know his ways like never before. So Jesus says to them and us, so don't give up. <laughs> don't quit. Whatever fear you're having, whatever you're feeling and anxiety to give up, don't throw the towel in. Don't wave the white flag. The Spirit is coming to help you and is present to help you understand. And that joy of spiritual understanding will generate something else. Here's the second thing. The second effect of the Spirit is the joy of effective prayer. Jesus says in verse 23, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name, so ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Their joy will compel them to pray fearless prayers, bold prayers, reimagined as possible prayers. This new era of the Spirit stipulates that we pray in Jesus' name. Okay, so what's that mean? Does that mean I've got to get the right formula for it to count? So in Jesus' name, amen. Is that it? <laughs> no, 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 no. That, that's not it. It's way beyond a formula. Jesus' name really indicates an intimate bond to Jesus and direct access to the Father. I really appreciate what Barclay, what Henry Barclay Sweet said in his commentary from years ago. He said, the name of Christ is both the passport by which the disciples may claim access into the audience chamber of God and the medium. His name is the medium through which the divine answer comes. Jesus' name is both the access and the means. It's this intimacy that results from Jesus indwelling the church and believers through the Spirit, and it assures success of our prayers as we pray in His name, a person's name really represents their nature, represents their character. Jesus, by definition, I learned this from Christmas, Yahweh saves. God saves. You'll call him Jesus. God is a rescuing God. So in Jesus' name, it means salvation from all sorts of things. In an evil day, it means salvation from demonic oppression. It means salvation from sin. It means salvation from guilt. It means salvation from, from shame. So what does praying in Jesus' name mean? I appreciate what Greg Pruitt said, a small little book called Extreme Prayer. He said, praying in Jesus' name means praying that God would use your life to connect the Word of God to the souls of people. It means praying God's will into the people around us. Praying in Jesus' name means that we align with His target to unleash salvation upon whomever, whenever, wherever. Greg Pruitt adds this. He says, the good news is that Jesus promises to release the full force of heaven when his people focus their prayers on his plan to redeem the people of the world. That's something he's passionate about. Praying in Jesus' name empowers us to pray fearless prayers, to pray expectant prayers, to pray confident prayers. So just ask yourself, what opportunities do you see before you that fear is preventing you from taking. Pray in Jesus' name about that. Ask yourself, what would I do if I only had faith and no fear? Pray in Jesus' name about that. The Spirit will help you pray. The Spirit will help you live fearlessly. 
my wife has actually been one that's been helping me quite a bit with this idea of if the role of the Spirit is that important, then He's actually the one who's vocalizing things of Jesus to me. So I ought to be trying to listen to what the Spirit's saying. You know, are you like me? I, I can talk the best of Him with the Father, and I can bend His ear for a long time. Just talk, talk, talk. Maybe it's sometimes where I need to like mute and just listen. So I want to know about what's it mean to listen to the Spirit? And how are we doing at listening to the Spirit? Asking Him what's on His mind. So maybe we need to ask for Jesus to, to line our hearts with living words by the Spirit. So just practically speaking here, if you're difficult, if you're having a difficult time trying to, trying to voice your prayers or actually listen to the Spirit's prompting, here's a couple of things maybe that have been helping me. I share them with you. One would be just to take more time. Take more time in your prayer spot. We're a rush, rush, get her done, cross it off, check it off, to-do list sort of a people, aren't we? Maybe we just need to breathe a little bit more and ask Jesus to still us there and turn our phones on airplane mode or throw it away for a while just to be still. Secondly, it's hard when we're fearful, but to express some word of thanks to God. Thank you, God, for and some expression of praise. And then thirdly, maybe we need to ask Jesus to protect us and to shield us from Satan. Satan is the, is the best at lying. He wants to lie in our ears and whisper false things about you. He cloaks God's truth when we're in our prayer closet. So we, Lord, help me to hear what Satan is doing. But fourthly, ex- help me to bear in mind maybe the lies I'm buying. What lies have I bought into? Lies about your worth, lies about your esteem, lies about your value, lies about whatever with regards to your role in the redeemed creation. And then lastly, stay in the scriptures. Keep reading the scriptures. And if you bear it in mind, it's God's word to you. You can word it back to him and have this interchange, this back and forth where I'm reading the the scriptures and I'm praying those very words back to him with question, with acknowledgement, with praise, with thanksgiving. It's all this interaction through the word. So as you pray, the spirit within you aligns your thoughts to Jesus if we'll listen. So we can then voice them in his name fearlessly. And Jesus wants to encourage the 12, so he says this in verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming, though, when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. That hour is not some 60-minute inanimate event. That hour in John's gospel is this relational access point through the Father, through Jesus' suffering. In the dark hour, in verse 26, it says, in that hour you will ask in my name, and I do, not say that, that you, I do not say to you that I will ask the Father in your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I come from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and I'm going to the Father. Do you hear that? Because the Father loves us, we can pray boldly in Jesus' name because we have direct access to the Father through the Holy Spirit. Have you picked up on this idea of the triune community that's right here, the Trinity? We have a role to participate in the triune God right here. Jesus, he reassures us that as you pray in his name, the Spirit will align your request with the Father's will. I love that Trinitarian idea that we're united into the triune. The Spirit residing within means we are deeply engaged with the Father, just like Jesus is. We can pray. We can pray more intimately. We can pray more informed with God because we know the way of Jesus. We know the way of the Spirit. We know the way of the Father and the way they think about every issue under the sun. Pray in Jesus' name about whatever that is. 
He says in verse, or the disciples say in verse 29, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and, and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus kind of confronts that with an answer. Do you now believe? I mean, after all that I've said and all that I've done with miracles, he's kind of doubting the rigor of their faith. And so he issues this warning in verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. It's upon us when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. In the darkest hour of suffering, the twelve will scatter and flee, but the Father will remain faithful. In their fear, they will flee, but the Father will remain faithful to Jesus. So verse 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have shalom, peace. In the world, in the context of, of these spiritual oppositions, and the constructs against the redemptive mission of God in the world, you will have tribulation and trouble and trial. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Discipleship is about learning how to discover peace when you're surrounded by threat. Discipleship is learning how to possess tranquility despite the hostile pressures to your faith. Jesus' peace, I think it leads to fearless faith. Have courage. The NIV says, take heart when you're surrounded by opposition. Despite the present crisis facing Jesus' disciples, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. The Greek word there is where, where we get our word Nike, nikao. It means he's conquered. He's victorious. He's defeated the destructive ways of the constructs that are against the kingdom of God. And now Jesus shares his authority with us. He shares his authority with the disciples. The key is the inhabiting presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit virtually becomes, one person said, the alter ego of Jesus, continuing his authority, continuing the reiteration of his words and his teaching. And here's the reality. Christians who swim upstream, Christians who are faithfully devoted to Jesus, who swim upstream in the world will have peace and joy only in Christ. Now that leads to fearless living. Praying in Jesus' name through the Spirit enables us to think as Jesus thinks, to do as Jesus would do in a secularized society. Praying in Jesus' name helps us to see the world for what it actually is. And the Spirit enables us. The Spirit will steal our nerves and will open our eyes to see the world as Jesus sees it. Let me illustrate it this way. Consider the brilliant image that C.S. Lewis paints in his, in his three-volume trilogy, well-known trilogy called the Space uh, Trilogy, uh, published 1938 to 1945. It's ancient, but it's brilliant. The point of the, of the series is, is uh, Lewis's exploration of human fallenness and, and human sin. Now, the hero in the story is a guy named Elwin Ransom. Interesting. He's an expert in language, and in, and in medieval literature, and he, acci he accidentally kind of finds himself in this rinky-dink spaceship heading off to Mars. <laughs> there he witnesses the attempted corruption of Mars by two diabolical demonic humans who learn about, and there he learns about the true nature of the universe while he's on Mars. On Mars, the prof encounters some special creatures. They're called spirit beings. 
They're serving the great spirit, the creator God of the universe. The spirit beings are assigned to keep that planet Mars and its residents from falling into sin like other planets. After the university prof explores the planet Mars in volume one, he goes off to Venus in, in, in volume two, and he finds himself in volume three on an exiled planet called planet Earth. There, he confronts the darkness and the wretchedness of the world. The good forces of the universe have de decided that the evil of Earth must be extinguished before, it's, before it cor its corruption spill over into the rest of the universe. One evening while on Earth, the spirit beings from deep heaven, they appear in dazzling brightness in the prof's living quarters on Earth. They're, they're like shining pillars of light, powerful, dangerous. But the important part lies here for Lewis's point. They appear to the prof to not be exactly vertical columns, but seem to be standing about 10 degrees off. They don't appear to be plumbed to the rest of the earth. And the impression the prof has is that they are off 10 degrees. However, they are in fact connected to true vertical, the great creator's vertical. And in reality, the entire planet Earth is off 10 degrees. For the first time, the prof sees true vertical. And it makes the entire world kind of seem irregular, kind of off from that point on. And the prof knows that the floor of the world is not quite level. He feels a little unsettled by that, but at the same time, it brings him assurance of what he actually knows is true. The ungodly constructs in the broken paradigms of the world today should shock us because they're off by 10 degrees, but they don't always. We can fall susceptible to being the proverbial frog in a kettle of water, adapting to the, to the subtle eclipse of truth around us as we boil to death. You know it. The world does not believe in. The world does not submit to Jesus' ways of thinking or behaving. Become last to be first? <laughs> not in your life. Turn the other cheek? <laughs> yeah, think twice about that one. Forgive as you've been forgiven? Good one. The ruler of the world, though, has been judged already. The Holy Spirit is given by Jesus to guide us into all truth. So pray in the name of Jesus. Pray for your mind to be transformed because the vice grip of the world is trying to squeeze into a worldly way of thinking, into a mold that is secularized, that isn't bound to truth. Only the Spirit will remind you of truth and cause your hearts, therefore, to rejoice and to have true peace in a really tumultuous, troubling world that Christians live in today. So my my thoughts for you to practically think about are this. How can Christians submit to the Spirit's influence in their life today in this world? How? Well, here's one way. Allow the Spirit to help you take an honest assessment of our world. Maybe we need to go through spiritual LASIK surgery or something. <laughs> to have spiritual eyes that identify the evil forces that are at work. Decades later, the Apostle Paul talked about praying that our eyes would be enlightened. That's what we're getting at here. In prayer, as guided by the Spirit, identify and diagnose the true nerve system of this world that's around our generation. And evil lies around us, but it's always behind the flesh and blood. It's not the people, it's what's behind it. May we have eyes to see what's truly the cause 
of decay and death and turmoil and disunity. What's going on here, really? The Spirit of Jesus' truth resides in us and will uncover true vertical, as Lewis put it, so that we can see how the world's being skewed and smeared and, and, and warped into a false reality about the teachings of Jesus' way and the teachings and the ways of Jesus. How else? How else could we allow the Spirit to guide us? Well, secondly, maybe you can allow the Spirit to give you courage. Courage to look for Jesus' return. Courage to look beyond the day into the tomorrow, into the future. That phrase, little while, that micron of chapter 16, it's like two millennia ago, you know? The resurrection of Jesus, that first resurrection in Jerusalem, it's not a personal experience that we share like it did for the 12. It's not something we can go back to and point to. The Apostle Paul actually admits that, that we kind of live in, a, in, in an opaque world, living, looking through a dark piece of glass. But one day, we yearn for this day when we will see Him face to face. So look. For Jesus' return, the Spirit will help you look beyond what's in front of you, beyond the temporal, beyond the urgent. Look for His return. For the first disciples back in the first century, their ultimate confirming experience was the first Easter. But for disciples today, our ultimate confirming experience will be the second advent, His reappearing. For Jesus, He says to us today, take heart. Be faithful in your courage. In me, you can live fearless as you look for me to reappear. You see, the second coming encourages followers today much the same way as Jesus' resurrection encouraged the 12 originally. And how did they live? On the other side of experiencing Jesus, the risen Jesus, they lived bold. They lived faithful. They lived expectant. Live as they lived. And when we do that, it breeds within us a fearlessness as we look for the day of the completion of our faith. To instill courage, to instill hope, Jesus gives us the Spirit. Rely upon the Spirit. Paul talks about the Spirit being like a deposit, a down payment, almost like earnest money, guaranteeing our eternal life. Will Jesus, it will happen. This life is not there is, all there is. So keep looking. Keep an eternal, long focus. So as you pray this week, or as you pray in communion here in just a moment, with tables here and on, on the sides and the back, pray during this time and let yourselves consider this thought, that you're an interim citizen. Consider us being interim citizens of the kingdom, looking back to Christ's first resurrection and looking forward to his reappearing one day. And note this as an interim citizen. Jesus did not say, have courage, you will overcome the world. He does not say that. The Greek is emphatic. The sentence structure is very clear. He says, have courage, I have overcome the world. I have faced your enemy and I've vanquished him. I've fought the battle on the battleground of human experience where you must fight and I've routed the foe. You can never do it, but I have done it and I can help you again through my spirit. Abide in me by my Holy Spirit and my victory, my promised joy is yours, Jesus says. Because Jesus has overcome the world, we can indeed live fearless today. During this song, I invite you to, if you want to partake of communion, to, to go to one of the tables and 
Get the cup that represents Jesus' blood and the little wafer that represents his broken body. Take it back to your seat. And after the song, we'll get together and we'll eat and drink in remembrance of him. But let's pray before we get going with that a little further, all right? Jesus, we thank you for depositing within us your Holy Spirit. Jesus, we cannot do this without your presence. And so thank you for being within us via the Spirit. You give us access to the Father, and so we can pray in your name with confidence and with success. We pray that you would enliven within us that discipline of prayer as we pray in this communion moment, as we re-engage with you, as we listen for the Spirit to remind us of truth and true vertical in this day. Would you encourage each and every one here, encourage this church to be a light and salt in a world that does not want that. Encourage each believer here to be strong and faithful. We commit our lives to you as the overcoming one. Thank you. Thank you for your power and your authority. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God 